if you have got the ability to observe in a frontal plane, we've experienced it before uh, at Sulphur City. Some of our players during just a simple linear deceleration task will display high levels of knee valgus. So from a movement quality perspective. Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast, the podcast that dives into the philosophies, ideas and practices of some of the best practitioners in high-performance sport. This episode with Tom DeSantos and Alistair McBurney was supposed to be a single episode, but it was that good and we went into so much depth on deceleration that we had to create a second episode that dives into change direction ability. So this episode is deceleration part one, and we these guys have got incredible experience in this from a research point of view, especially, but also from uh, an applied point of view as well. And it's a topic that we don't discuss enough. I don't think it is it is increasing in its um, its prevalence and discussions in our industry. But I recently had Damien Harper on the Pace Performance podcast, which is probably the one of the first real deep dives into deceleration. And this episode is much of the same. So a superb episode which gives so, so much information when it comes to the research world and applied world. So if you're in team sports and looking for more information on deceleration, keep listening for the next hour. Trust me, there is so much in this episode. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by Fusion Sport. Fusion Sport is a global leader in human performance solutions for elite sport, military, and workplace health. Fusion Sport's data management and analytics platform, Smarterbase, is designed to provide elite human performance organizations with a one-stop shop solution for the holistic management of their teams. Highly configurable and capable of allowing the integration of other systems and wearables into its operations, Smarterbase enables organizations to capture, manage, analyze, report, and share data across the whole organization. When you adopt the Smarterbase human performance platform, you're choosing more than just a product, you're choosing a technology partner and a team of consultants who have worked with some of the world's most elite performance organizations. Smarterbase is trusted by the world's best in human performance, including the National Basketball Association, the NBA, the LA Lakers, US Special Operations Command, Australian Institute of Sport and US Soccer. Visit fusionsport.com forward slash Smarterbase to learn more about how Smarterbase can help turn your data into a winning advantage. And this episode is also sponsored by Hawking Dynamics. Hawking Dynamics is the world's first wireless force plate testing system. The Hawking Dynamics system is built for coaches to test in the real world, not just in the lab. Capture reliable data on all your athletes in a matter of minutes and monitor their progress in the cloud from anywhere in the world. The Hawking Dynamics force plates are wireless, portable and trusted by teams at every level of sport. Integrating force plates into your athlete monitoring program has never been easier or more affordable. If you want to see the Hawking Dynamics force plate system in action, head over to their website hawkingdynamics.com to schedule a demo or follow them on Twitter at Hawking Dynamics. So without further ado, over to the episode with Alistair and Tom. Alistair McBurney and Tom DeSantos, welcome to the Pace Performance Podcast. Cheers, Rob. It's a pleasure Cheers, to be on. Rob. Thank you very much. We've got 
a Britney lookalike here with the uh, with the headset on, <laughs> with the headset on, very serious, but we're looking good, looking good. I like it. Oh, I hate it. I hate it. Not out of choice, Rob. Not out of choice. <laughs> well, I'm going to come to you first, Alistair, just for a little bit of a bio, and then I'll come to you, uh, come to you, Tom, and then we'll uh, we'll crack on with the chat around deceleration and and change direction. Okay. Over to you, mate. Start cracking on now. Over to me. Yeah, so I guess my role's kind of evolved quite quickly over a a very short kind of career so far. Um, I'm currently a sports science analyst at Man United's first team. Um, But kind of since uh, the start of lockdown, um, that's become a key role and responsibility. However, before then, I was based in the academy. Um, I mean, from from the very start off, I actually was an intern, as a, a performance analyst, uh, and then kind of worked my way into the, the sports science department, uh, kind of offering help where I could. Uh, worked a lot with James Parr at the academy as well, who's a, who's a very good practitioner. Um, and then kind of as lockdown struck, um, we found ourselves doing a lot more of remote working, um, Probably have, have had a lot of people on discussing kind of the um, Zoom calls that they've had to do with their players or athletes. Uh, we were doing similar things and trying to keep them all engaged and stuff. And then I think my um, boss, Richard Hawkins, kind of realised that, hang on a minute, this guy's got a bit more time on his hands now so we can um, get his services in, in the first team um, and kind of... As time's gone on, I've been kind of responsible for supporting the athlete management systems at the first team level, um, kind of the analytics and also supporting some of the sports science concepts that we're trying to develop and get across to the coaches and the players. So, sounds so, good. Yeah. Thanks for that, mate. Over to you, Tom. Oh, cheers, Rob. Cheers, Alistair. So, yeah, I'm currently a lecturer at MMU or Manchester Metropolitan University, where I teach strength conditioning and sports biomechanics. Uh, previous to that role, I was at the University of Salford. So I studied my undergrad in sports science, done a three years part time master's in strength conditioning. Uh, during that time, that's when I started to develop a bit more of my practitioner skills. So I was at Salford Reds where I done my placement for six months. I then met Chris Thomas who's a very good sports uh, biomechanist and strength conditioning coach. He's currently based out in Aspire in Qatar. Uh, I'd probably say he's had a really big influence on my career, uh, about two years ahead of me at that time. So I kind of saw him as a mentor and he asked me to work with him with the England Northwest netball squad. So we used to train the under 15s to 19s girls who are now the feeder team for the Manchester Thunder. So that was a really good experience. During that time, I realized I wanted to get into the research So fortunately, I've done a lot of stuff with Paul Comfort and Paul Jones, and I was fortunate enough to do a PhD studentship for three years and some part-time or hourly paid lecturing, uh, investigating change direction biomechanics. Uh, During my time during the PhD, got to meet Alistair, who I was teaching at the time. Uh, We were at Salford City as well. I used Salford City for six months uh, to do some of my training intervention studies. So that was a really good experience. And then when Alistair was at Manchester United, he got me involved in some kind of like casual based sessions where I was doing a lot more of the strength and power testing and change direction testing and multi-directional speed profiling and training as well. Unfortunately, due to COVID, uh, that prevented that kind of partnership carrying on. 
and then once I finished my PhD, I then did a Carlos Tevez and switched over to MMU. Uh, I got a full-time lecturing job at MMU and I've, I've learned so much over the last 18 months, especially during lockdown and they're significant, uh, significantly investing a lot of money uh, into the department, hoping to get a department with a member, about 80 members of staff in the future over the next three to four years. So really exciting times at the moment, but yeah, really good experience working with Paul Jones and Paul Comfort. Alistair and Chris Thomas. Nice. And that brings me on to the science of multidirectional speed, which is another little collaboration you guys have got going on. Talk to a little bit about that. I'll come back to you, Alistair. Talk to a little bit about that. Yeah, so I think, I guess it started when we were both students and um, well, Tom was a PhD student at the time. And um, I think I was one of them students who kind of got involved in everything I possibly could. So I had a range of different um, internship placements that um, I kind of offered myself to. But then alongside that, uh, a lot of the stuff that you do, at, um, I'm guessing at most undergraduate universities, uh, sports science courses, sorry, it's kind of get in the mix with a lot of the, the testing that's going on. So Tom was actually um, doing some work in the, the biomechanics lab where you get kind of all your, your markers lined up on your body and you get it stripped down almost into your, your, uh, into your uh, boxes and you're just sprinting, getting yourself um, analysed. Um, and then I kind of decided that that was going to be um, an area that I kind of wanted to explore for my dissertation as well. So it quickly became something where we both kind of worked alongside each other to kind of get a bit more... Um, uh, athletes involved in it so uh, we actually with my internship placement at Salford um, City it was their academy so it was Academy 92 we um, spent a whole week actually getting all of the academy players in uh, into the biomechanics lab um, and we kind of evaluated different change of direction uh, strategies but I think from that we were, we were kind of we thought that this was basically an area that we wanted to explore a bit further um, and we kind of moved away from that, got a few publications going um, and I started kind of my involvement at Man United and I was always kind of speaking to Tom about different things because obviously he had his, um, his research background as well so he was, a, he was a great mentor to kind of flick, exchange ideas between so it's almost kind of like right I've got these players in at this time or I've got a week's worth of training uh, what what do you think to this? What do you think to that? And then we were kind of making little iterations uh, in the applied setting, um, deciding on what drills to do, uh, and when and where to do them, uh, what kind of testing techniques we can do. And then it kind of got to a point where because of the roles and responsibilities that we had in the academy, it was kind of a, a case of, right, let's get Tom in to, to help, us, help us out a little bit uh, from a, an assessment and uh training point of view um and then we kind of as we were doing that it was it was it was a case of let's try and start something up um and i think tom was the the creator of science of multi-directional speed um got a twitter uh profile going um, and we ended up kind of sharing a lot of the stuff that we were coming across whether it's research or videos that we thought were, were quite good um training exercises um, and then kind of in the last year, I think it's kicked, kicked on a little bit again because um, we 
myself and Tom kind of collaborated on a, a two-part review article that's been published in the Strength and Conditioning Journal, and it's kind of been the underpinning, uh, or the theoretical underpinning for a lot of the stuff that we're going to try and push forwards going down the line. So a new website as well, Tom? Is that your is that your baby? Uh to, to, to be fair, I think uh, Alistair's done a great job just highlighting how it kind of how it all originated. It probably stemmed, I think, from the summer of 2018. We just came across this idea. I think it came from more my experience assisting with teaching and just seeing a lot of students really competent at coaching Olympic lifts, basic resistance training exercise, quite comfortable plyometrics. But then as soon as it came to any field-based multi-directional speed exercise, it just goes to pop. They become cheerleaders. Uh, said just lots of strong verbal encouragement, but I don't actually really know how to coach basic acceleration, deceleration, change direction. So it kind of stemmed from there, actually trying to create a platform to try and disseminate and bridge the gap between like science and application, trying to get the application onto the field. So we do this research, but we want practitioners and coaches to apply it essentially. And that's kind of where my passion is. I really love multi-directional speed. I've had a great upbringing in terms of learning about Olympic lifts and resistance training, strength training, and I'm a big advocate for that. But ultimately, for multi-directional sports, movement wins the matches, not your strength capacity. I know it's an underpinning quality, but to score goals, to break away from opponents requires a significant acceleration or a decel or a change direction. And I just think there's a, a gap in the market, I think, essentially for it. So I think there's a lot of interest over the last few years especially sprinting, sprinting sexy at the moment. It You've is. had a lot of people on it your uh, decelerations, getting a lot of popularity and change of direction as well, and even curvilinear speed. So it's kind of like an umbrella term that we're using multi-directional speed, which encompasses all these different high-intensity actions. And we've been fortunate enough to get Chris Thomas and Paul Jones involved over the last year as well. So you met, Tom mentioned there about deceleration. It's something that has not come up loads, but has come up, like Tom says, more and more recently with Lauren Landau talking about it a few months ago, probably a few years ago, actually, but um, Damien Harper uh, coming on the podcast uh, not too long ago talking about it in depth. But one thing that Damien mentioned, and we went down this this rabbit hole as well, talking about the performance side, but also the injury risk reduction side. Alistair, why is it so important that we do focus on both them things and what's your thoughts on the importance of training deceleration for both them aspects yeah well I think when we talk about deceleration um, we're either referring to it as an action immediately preceding uh, a sprint or um, preceding or the penultimate steps before a change of direction maneuver so it's almost like a prerequisite for a lot of actions um, or high-intensity actions that are going on in um, match play across all team sports. And I think from a performance perspective, um, a lot of Tom's works looked into the penultimate um, steps preceding a change of direction manoeuvre. And we know that within that, we we want to basically effective deceleration underpins effective change of direction performance. And that is simply because in order to reduce horizontal momentum and reduce the um, kind of requirements of the final change of direction foot plant um, as a braking requirement, we almost want that final change of direction foot plant to be more of a propulsive element to which that deceleration and applying that 
um, high deceleration braking forces underpins that. So from a performance perspective, I think being able to slam on the brakes both quickly and effectively um, will be conducive to change direction performance, but also being able to react to situations in gameplay. Um, you know, when players are trying to invade opponents, being able to create that separation from the opponent um, and kind of exploiting the space uh, is really important. Um, from a more injury risk side of things, uh, there's a lot of uh, things going on really in terms of what are the implications from both a biomechanical and physiological perspective. And we've kind of touched on this a lot in um, our recent review that was published in Sports Medicine. But essentially what we're trying to kind of discuss in with respect to horizontal deceleration is that they are unique actions in comparison to kind of other high-intensity key performance indicators. And I think that we, we talk about acceleration and high-speed running being a very important thing to kind of um, both expose athletes to and prepare them and monitor during the weekly training cycles. But I think decelerations need need to have the same focus. And from a biomechanical biomechanical perspective, you'll see that, and this is kind of work done by Damien Harper, he likes to see a, a higher impact peak and loading rate um, from a deceleration. So that higher spike in ground reaction force you'll typically see versus... Um, an acceleration which can be down to kind of the, the rapidly imposed nature of horizontal decelerations but also the kind of movement strategy performed as well so that kind of heel uh, foot contact and that stiffness in comparison to a more mid to four foot striking strategy for your acceleration um, then from a more physiological perspective um, Horizontal decelerations obviously have that really um, strong eccentric element to them, which can impart muscle damage. Um, and this kind of can have acute implications as well as chronic implications because we, we also know that the high eccentric force requirements of horizontal decelerations can um, kind of disrupt the structural integrity of the muscle cells. Um, and that may, over the course of a long competitive season, uh, under kind of fatigue conditions, it may actually exceed the, the muscle's uh, capacity to kind of tolerate them high uh, eccentric loads, and it could cause um, kind of these acute muscle strain injuries we see. But then, probably from more a chronic perspective, if we're again talking about these team sport athletes who are required to repeat um, these high intensity performance over multiple uh, matches, uh, high fixture densities and kind of repeating these high intensity actions may cause a kind of um, a submaximal um, repetitive loading consequence which may kind of surpass the remodeling rate of the biological tissue because of the limited um, fit the limited times um, of recovery, or li limited recovery, recovery timelines, sorry. So in essence, we've got this um, kind of athlete who, if they aren't physically prepared enough or don't have the physical capacity to tolerate the high braking demands, as well as the technical proficiency 
to kind of dissipate or attenuate the breaking loads, coupled with the fact that they are required to repeat these high intensity actions uh, multiple times within a training week or um, within a cycle, they may be susceptible to injury due to the kind of elements that we've just discussed in terms of the biomechanics and physiology of decelerations. So we almost want to understand that horizontal decelerations have these unique elements, which if we can understand and highlight, we can almost sequence them appropriately within a training cycle um, and hopefully reduce the relative risk of injury that athletes may uh, be susceptible to but also um, improve the performance as well, which I'm sure Tom can talk about a little bit more with his work. Love that segue. Cheers, Alistair. Thank you for that. Over to you, Tom. Uh, Cheers for Alistair. Really great insight. So, yeah, so as Alistair was stating before, we kind of can treat deceleration from a performance aspect from two perspectives. Treat it as an isolated agility action. So if we consider Warren Young or Shepard and Young's definition for 2006 a rapid whole body movement with a change of direction or velocity in response to stimulus so deceleration in its own right is its own unique agility action as Alistair was saying before trying to create separation we typically see it with our wingers potentially in rugby American football even soccer doing those enforced decelerations from an attacking perspective to try and create that separation in order to maybe re-accelerate again or catch a ball or catch a or receive a pass then from a change of direction perspective, we've discussed something uh, known as the kind of angle velocity trade-off. So typically as the angle increases, we need to reduce our horizontal momentum in order to perform that intended angle or change of direction. And typically as angle increases, our momentum must reduce and normally the ground contact time will increase in proportion to that angle. Based on something like the biomechanical literature, it seems to be in terms of like the preliminary deceleration, there's probably a minimal requirement to decelerate prior to or for change of directions around about 45 degrees and below from a pre-planned perspective. Obviously, there'll be scenarios in multi-directional speed sports where if you were having to perform a shallower change of direction, we will need to slam on the brakes slightly for an acute angle change of direction. But typically, in terms of the penultimate foot contact, the second to last foot, foot contact that we're interested in, it seems to be 60 degrees and above. And we've even shown some evidence that even the antipenultimate foot contact has a significant role in deceleration. And again, some of the evidence seems to show that deceleration distances for these sharper change of directions can range from anywhere from about four to seven meters. So it highlights the multi-step nature of change direction to reduce that momentum in order to deflect our center of mass. So that's, that's key for performance. You've probably seen yourself as a practitioner, athletes run too quickly and they can't perform that intended angle of directional change, which probably affects their ability to deflect the centre of mass and makes them more susceptible being tackled if it's an invasion sport where we're trying to evade our opponents. So it's kind of like a speed accuracy trade-off. Then from the injury risk perspective, deceleration actions are associated with injury sighting events. As Alice has said before, we can get around about six times body weight of impact ground reaction forces within 50 milliseconds. So my background is ACL injuries. That seems to be the kind of window when these ACL injuries occur. These ACL injuries and other tissue injuries occur when we experience a mechanical load that ex- exceeds its ultimate tensile strength. So that could just be one single catastrophic load. Uh, by these loads, we can be referring to torques or knee moments in particular, 
which is just the ground reaction force multiplied by the moment arm. So if you're landing stiffly and have a high impact ground reaction force, we're potentially going to increase our knee joint loads and that could potentially increase load into the ACL and the other tissues and structures in the knee in particular. And over time, if that single load's high enough, that could result in a rupture. But as Alistair uh, described really well before, potentially there's this mechanism of a fatigue failure. So we see athletes performing hundreds of decelerations, hundreds of change directions without getting injured. So why is it that one time they do get injured? Is it because of a fatigue failure mechanism where we gradually get this reduction in structural integrity and the low tolerance of that tissue? If we see experience like chronic exposure to these submaximal lows, which gradually weaken the knee ligament or the other tissues and without adequate rest and repair, that submaximal load now becomes a load it can no longer tolerate, which therefore results potentially in that rupture or that strain or what other uh, injury mechanism there is potentially there. So they are associated with ACL injuries, uh, other soft tissue injuries, uh, ankle injuries in particular, if we experience some high inversion angular velocities during these decelerations. Uh, Jordan Mendeguccia, apologies if I've said his name incorrectly, has been discussing, and other JB Morin, if we're talking about anterior pelvic tilt. And although knee injuries seem to be the predominant injuries associated with D cells and change directions, there's also the potential to generate potentially some hamstring strain injuries as well, particularly if we get rapid trunk flexion, rapid trunk flexion, sorry, with an extended knee posture, which we need during a, when we're decelerating. And I think they've described it really well, particularly with an anterior pelvic tilt with this rapid trunk flexion. We're going to get a lot of extreme lengthening and loading at the proximal portion of the hamstring. So in addition to knee injury risk from a, a knee ligament and a quadricep tendon, a patellar tendon perspective, we've also got to be thinking on the posterior aspect and the proximal portion of our hamstrings as well. So so with, with the, obviously with the importance of this based on what you've both said, monitoring and and testing so from an isolated point of view, maybe in the testing, so that maybe come to you, Tom, on that. And then the, the monitoring side yeah. of things day to day, come to you, Alistair, on that. Is that all right? Tom? Yes. Yeah, so I suppose we'll go from like bronze standard, completely field-based to the gold standard yeah. method in yeah. terms of uh, testing deceleration. So from a basic perspective, I think coaches need to start appreciating and maybe just using the coach's eye and start evaluating the technical aspect in terms of deceleration and potentially using high-speed cameras. We've all got smartphones generally. They all can record generate 120 frames per second or above. So there's nothing to prevent us now from doing some enforced decelerations with our athletes, filming predominantly from the sagittal plane from the side and observing some of the technical characteristics. If you have got the ability to observe in the frontal plane, We've experienced it before uh, at Salford City. Some of our players, during just a simple linear deceleration task, will display high levels of knee valgus. So from a movement quality perspective, for every task, I know kinograms are very popular for acceleration. I think we should be doing the same with deceleration from a movement quality perspective. The simple way of probably measuring deceleration, we need to be thinking about probably what the KPIs are, what are our key metrics that indicate what, an athlete who's very successful and very competent at deceleration. So probably the key thing that we're after is time to stop and deceleration or distance to stop. We want athletes to be able to break very quickly over a short amount of time and over a short distance. So one 
crude way of doing it. It's just simply with a tape measure. There have been some research studies of using a tape measure. An athlete runs in, once they get to maybe the cone and the tape measure, they slam on the brakes. Not the best way of doing it. A lot of athletes will probably adopt a kind of pacing strategy or start decelerating prior. The next step I'll probably recommend, again, is probably using our high-speed cameras. So Damon Harper used a high-speed camera. And there's probably two ways of assessing deceleration, which he, he speaks about. And I think Phil Graham Smith has done before. We have decelerating to a predefined point. So maybe that's 15 meters or 20 meters or 20 meters. Or you sprint to a certain distance. Once you reach that threshold or that marker, then you slam on the brakes. So Damon Harper is a big advocate for that one. David, uh, Phil Graham Smith has done the, the former where you actually decelerate to a predetermined point. So what we could do with our cameras, we could position the camera probably around about five to 10 meters away in the sagittal plane from the marker. And what David Harper did is he examined the approach velocity one meters uh, from 19 to 20 meters just before they had to slam on the brakes. And then using your cameras, you can identify a tracking marker potentially on the pelvis or use the whole body if you wanted to. And then you would measure the distance it's taken them to decelerate from that marker past that point and you could work out the time to stop. So we get a distance to stop and a time to stop. But what we need to factor in is the athlete's approach velocity as well because it's going to be biased towards slower athletes. If, you're, if you've got a larger momentum or greater momentum, so heavier and faster, you're at a disadvantage because you're going to require greater braking or net horizontal braking impulse to decelerate and reduce your momentum. The issue with those tasks is that it does require 2D analysis, so it can be a bit more time consuming. And based on some of uh, Damon Harper's and Phil and uh, Paul Jones's research, athletes tend to de start decelerating before that 20 meter mark. So they were reporting deceleration distances of three to four meters, when in fact they actually started decelerating potentially one to three meters before that point. So that's something that we need to bear in mind if you are just using or measuring distance to stop from that predefined point. The probably next step or the best way to go is potentially using like a radar or a laser device. So we have stalker speed guns. So that's what Damien Harper's used. That samples at 47 hertz. So we get an instantaneous velocity profile for athletes. I know Paul Jones or Phil Graham Smith have used lab eggs, uh, which I think sample at 100 hertz. So we get a bit more data. I know deceleration, we're interested in that meters per second squared. And some people are interested in peak deceleration values. However, that only represents one data point, And that could just be a, a freak or random part of data. So I know Damien's a big advocate of measuring average deceleration during uh, the deceleration task and he started breaking it down into early and late deceleration and the beauty with that device is we're able to identify when they've started decelerating so even if you are putting that 20 marker checkpoint you can identify if they're decelerating maybe two to three meters earlier. And that's what Damien Harper seems to be finding. Maybe around about the 17 and a half meter marker point, they seem to be putting on the brakes, which is fine as long as you're monitoring. He identifies deceleration distance as the distance from when they've achieved peak velocity to going in towards that back pedal. So zero meters per second and then in a, a negative direction. So we can get those metrics from that. And in terms of the potential metrics that we want to examine, we can get our deceleration distance. So how long is the, uh, the typical distance it's taken them to decelerate and the time. They would be the two key, key P, KPIs. Sorry, I've just 
butchered that up. There. That's all right. That's fine. Carry on. We know what you mean. Uh, yes, they seem to be our two KPIs that we're interested in. So getting the distance to stop and time to stop with an appreciation of that athlete's entry velocity. So it's kind of, I don't think there's one single metric. We have discussed the possibility of maybe creating a ratio. So take the athlete's initial entry velocity and then maybe looking at the ratio of that entry velocity or peak speed and their distance and time to stop. And then from there, it does require a sophisticated bit of kit. I believe the Ergo test is another device that's around about five to ten thousand euros stalker speed guns a bit more affordable about two and a half thousand dollars and the lav eggs i think a bit more difficult to get hold of i believe companies such as player maker which is wearable for the foot are working on the device potentially to start monitoring it in the field and then the unique aspect of that is we'll start to be able to monitor the foot to foot and loading distribution between left and right limbs to see if there's any asymmetries let's react another company i using radar and they're creating kind of like a 25 meter radius dome and they're potentially working on a deceleration test using that same uh, similar bit of technology and then even sport like this potential scope of using lidar technology as well and then probably the gold standard but probably very difficult to implement in the field would probably be 3d motion analysis where we can get that instantaneous assessment of center of mass velocity but that requires kind of qualysis or vicon very difficult to implement in the field. Although there are now the advancements in markerless technology as well. And I know Jonas Dodu has started using, I think, binary sports app, uh, which kind of a bit more, you identify the markers, I think, initially, and then they automatically track them. Not too sure on the validity of that approach, but but again, a bit more insight into not only just the kind of the instantaneous velocity, but we're getting a bit more insight into how they're performing the deceleration so you can get some insights into some of the spatial temporal characteristics limb velocities uh, step length step frequencies etc as well so that's a really good i think there's a lot of potential there and i think over the next three to five years i think markerless technology will be amazing and probably bridging the gap and getting more insights to practitioners in the field so we're just going to take a very quick break in the chat with tom and alistair so in part two, we have a little chat around monitoring deceleration from a, uh, a player tracking point of view. Also, what's potentially coming down the pipe when it comes to enhancing the data that we get from deceleration movements. Then Tom dives into the physical qualities that we can develop off-field in the gym to help with our deceleration ability. So another superb part two coming up. This episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast is sponsored by iMeasureU. iMeasureU is used by leading sports practitioners and biomechanics researchers worldwide to capture and compare multi-limb inertial data in the field. IMU Step from iMeasureU is a dual sensor and app lower limb load monitoring tool which helps practitioners optimise return to play for running based sports. iMeasureU have just released their new and improved waterproof sensor Blue Trident which includes ultra-high G capabilities to quantify high-impact steps such as cutting, landing and sprinting, longer-life battery to collect data all day, real-time feedback to aid immediate interventions, and faster workflow so practitioners can review long training sessions within minutes of training completion. iMeasureU, now part of Vicom, works with military, pro and collegiate coaches and athletes from around the world, including the Australian Institute of Sport, the US Department of Defence and collegiate and pro teams from around the world. 
If you want to get to know more about iMeasureU, head over to their website, iMeasureU.com, or follow them on Twitter or Instagram at iMeasureU. And now back to the episode with Alistair and Tom. Tom's mentioned it there with introduction of Playmaker and things like that, but from a day-to-day monitoring point of view, Alistair, when it comes to deceleration, what kind of things are you doing? Is it just count? Like deceleration count? Is it deceleration intensity using player tracking? Yeah, I think um, obviously Tom's alluded to uh, a lot of potential technologies that down the line are going to be very useful and give us a lot more insights into to kind of assessing and monitoring um, these actions. But I think based on current technologies, and it's I think it's pretty much uh, every every top club we're using them now. It's uh, usually through GPS tracking, um, and it's obviously it's very useful and it tells you. A lot of information uh, in relation to, to kind of the, the volume and also the intensity of whole body movements, and I, I'd like to kind of underline that it is just whole body movement. And for us to kind of really understand what's going on um, in, in terms of what is the actual movement strategy of the athlete, we currently won't get that. Um, we're able to to kind of kind of more deeply analyze. Uh, uh, supposed center of mass velocity with these units but I think even that will take a lot of extra work uh, within the day-to-day practices so like you said we're, we're using count currently uh, I think it's over three uh, meters per second squared uh, and just kind of classifying them as high intensity actions um, and that's the same for accelerations as well but I think I'd kind of like to highlight that there are differences between um, the, the demands of a high-intensity acceleration versus a high-intensity deceleration, which currently just use the same arbitrary cutoff value, whether it's 3 metres per second or uh, 2.5 metres per, spe- per second or whatever. But in actual fact, um, the actual maximal rates of deceleration are, are much higher than a- acceleration. Um, so... And we also know about the the kind of the biomechanical requirements of decelerations versus accelerations being very different. Um, there may be a bit more of a metabolic cost to accelerations versus greater biomechanical loading. So I think we we probably need to, to look into it a little bit more to see how we're actually uh, evaluating the different actions instead of using these arbitrary thresholds. Uh, I know that um, there's been recent work. I think Harper was involved. Damon was involved again uh, to do with individualizing um, a kind of high intensity locomotor profile uh, using both acceleration and deceleration, but also your max aerobic speed and max velocity. And I think they're the key things really going forwards because if we move away from horizontal decelerations just for a second, I think. You know, high speed running at the moment, we're, we're all kind of using this arbitrary cutoff, whether it's 19.8 kilometers an hour or 20 kilometers per hour to, to kind of assign the actual absolute volume of um, running that they're doing at that intensity. However, I think if we really want to individualize it, you, you want to be using that max aerobic speed versus the maximum sprint speed uh, and getting that um, anaerobic speed reserve. And I think the same can be said for um, horizontal decelerations as well. So unfortunately, I don't have the answers to what 
potentially can be the next um, movement for kind of the centre of mass velocity elements. But I think realistically we, we want to be getting the um, kind of interlimb differences, which these more um, foot-based um, accelerometer um, technologies are we going to be offering um, just to get a bit more insight in, into kind of what are the asymmetrical loading patterns between limbs um, I mean, obviously there's going to be positional elements to that position specific elements to that and just more simply individual elements to that you know some players might prefer to to use or, or have a dominant leg to turn off or to decelerate off and if we're able to, to monitor monitor that um, at both the acute and chronic level, we will be able to kind of uncover the trends um, in relation to, you know, is one specific limb getting overloaded uh, versus another one potentially getting underloaded? You know, is there going to be spikes in workload between the limbs in that sense? Um, so I think until we have these technologies um, validated and uh, kind of more used in, in, in research going forwards, we're kind of at a point where we're kind of going to have to make do with what we've got currently. And I mean, there's still valuable insights to be to made from GPS. And I think we, we kind of discuss kind of if we're to focus on horizontal deceleration as a, a kind of a key performance indicator within a, a weekly microcycle, we're kind of looking at it from these two acquisition days. So on a day-to-day um, we're looking at these two acquisition days, maybe potentially being a G minus four and a G minus three. Um, that being the days before a game, as these kind of windows of opportunity to kind of train horizontal decelerations. And from a monitoring perspective, you might get that using uh, just you know simply count of horizontal decelerations. You can kind of get a, an indication as to the the volume that has been carried out in. A training session, whether that is through uh, athletic development training uh, or the sport-specific practice, through kind of the manipulation of drill parameters, we could maybe see typically on a, an intensive day um, where the, the pitch areas are a bit smaller, um, and you, you'll see a, lo- a larger volume of accelerations, decelerations, and change directions being performed, and then that will get, kind of give us an indication of, you know, what is the volume that of deceleration work that these players have been exposed to during this training day or, or this intensive theme day. And I think that is more your kind of your volume element. And I think Damien Harper kind of discusses this kind of decelerant, deceleration endurance aspect if we're looking at it from a more kind of um, physical rationale. However, then I'd also kind of highlight that in a typically more... Um, we call it the extensive training theme where you, you open up the pitch areas and you kind of typically this is where you get the exposures to maximum velocity and there's higher volumes of high speed running, which is obviously a key um, training theme within the week. If you got one match at the end of the weekend um, and on these kind of extensive training days, um, we're going for that high intensity uh, movement speeds but you'd probably also see these high-intensity decelerations be performed there. So with the greater distances that you're typically getting from um, opening up the pitch areas, this enables higher movement speeds, which require more intense braking 
to slow the athletes down. So I think if we're looking at volume on an intensive training day and, and looking at the, the volume of um, high-intensity deceleration actions on a more of a extensive training focus day, you might want to look at the intensity of the high-intensity decelerations. And I know Tom's kind of criticised that potentially um, maximal deceleration doesn't tell you a great deal because it can actually be just an erroneous movement action. Uh, and obviously the kind of unit error involved in that as well from a technology um, kind of a sampling rate perspective, it's kind of difficult to uncover. But maybe as just a way of informing, are we actually exposing our athletes to high intensity or very high intensity deceleration actions? Um, that might potentially offer us a bit of um, insight because I know that um, a lot of um, uh, we, we, we certainly do use um, a percentage of maximum sprinting speed and we look into, you know, we, we track that over time to see when our athletes, when our players have been exposed to above 90 to 95% of their maximum sprinting speed. And if they've not done that um, in the last few weeks, that's something that we need to sit down and go, right, we need these players to be exposed to that uh, stimulus. And I think the same can be true for horizontal decelerations. I think if a player has not been exposed to their maximal um, intensity decelerations, it's something that we need to sit down and go, right, well, we need to make sure that we're preparing these athletes because this is going to be happening in, in competition. Um, so, yeah, I think currently, based on the, the technologies that we, we have available to us at the moment, talking more about these whole body measures of uh, exercise, volume and intensity uh, with GPS tracking, I think they're probably our best bets to give us insights into the volume and intensity of actions. And there's obviously... Uh, um, frequency and density and all that kind of thing that needs to go on as well but I think moving forwards we really want to to kind of have a bit more insight into the insulin differences between um, what potential deceleration loading is occurring um, which these kind of um, accelerometers uh, like Playmaker uh, or the IMUs um, can maybe give us a bit more insights into um you know, all the spatio-temporal factors such as ground contact times, uh, stride rate, stride frequency. We don't actually know what athletes are exposed to during competition and training. And until we do actually know that, um, or what we can do to start off with when we, we, we do end up using these te technologies in a bit more of our day-to-day -day practice is actually uncover the trends on an individual basis to see what is normal for an athlete and go... Right, okay, so this player performs a significant amount of turns or decelerations on their left limb. Why is that? Is that a positional requirement? But then to go, is that normal for them? And actually, you know, they might turn a lot more off their left limb and they might actually have a lot more loading going on through their left limb. Um, just trying to find a bandwidth of what is normal, what is a spike, what is an underloading um, to kind of inform more individualised training strategies or interventions as a consequence of that monitoring. Nice, mate. So Tom mentioned it, you've mentioned it. Do we think the boot-worn sensors are going to be the next thing to kind of integrate within performance departments? Obviously, you don't have to say anything about the club, but um, do you think that's going to be the case where people gravitate towards that? I think so. I think it's just the next level, really, isn't it? I think we, we, we talk about 
whole body loading and evaluating you know the key performance metrics we currently have might be total distance high speed running sprinting distance accelerations and decelerations and i'm not kind of telling you things that are reinventing the wheel there i think everyone is is are using them as the key monitoring metrics especially well in particular in soccer football sorry i've got the <laughs> american right. version going on it's all right. um but i think to to kind of realistically go that next level and uncover a deeper understanding of what is actually going on um we, we can almost see it as you know we have these global measures of um exercise output but then to look at more precise aspects such as what we'd get from these devices would potentially give us more insights into not only um kind of from a, a loading or a monitoring perspective in terms of volume and intensity but also individualizing training because we want to to make athletes better at performing these high intensity actions and to just have an insight into the volume this player performs you know 200 meters of sprinting distance in a game that's great from a a volume perspective and almost kind of programming uh you know weekly and monthly training volumes but in terms of how are we actually programming that how are they actually achieving that movement and these kind of movement strategies and the the spatiotemporal variables that you get from these kind of technologies i think will give us more insights into the specific drills that can target them because you know if we're if we're looking at horizontal deceleration and we we uncover that uh, a player's ground contact time maybe a bit too um, elongated, we're then going stripping that back and going, right, what can we do in the gym to make sure that we're actually increasing um, elements that are going to improve ground contact time or stiffness, if you like. So I think when we get to a point where we can move a lot of the stuff that is typically done in a lab and moving it to the field and almost testing without testing players uh, within their, you know, athletic development training programs you know these technologies are able to pick up every single action that they're doing so it becomes a point where we don't have to worry about getting athletes in for a testing battery it can almost be done as part of the day-to-day practices uh, as part of the warm-ups etc and with and with that technology getting technical data as well how many times it's touching your left foot touching your right foot all that kind of stuff but tom just i must have mentioned it there right at the end in terms of developing the qualities needed for good deceleration ability in the gym, when people look towards that, what should people be focusing on based on what we've just spoken about for the last 45 minutes? Yeah, so uh, I think it'll be very similar to probably change the direction, especially when we think about that angle velocity trade-off again. So we kind of think the shallower change directions, maybe more velocity dominant, maybe a bit more concentric and reactive strength dominant, whereas particularly anything 60 degrees, 90 degrees and above, probably a bit more of eccentric strength training focused. So in terms of physically preparing athletes, we like to think about specific musculature and segments that we want to target and then maybe think about the underlying physical qualities and strength qualities. So if I go maybe discuss maybe the musculature first and then maybe some particular physical qualities and training methods. So in terms of probably nothing revolutionary, but it should be like a mixed multi-component and multi-segmental model. It's not just one specific area, one ex- 
training modality that I think is going to bulletproof our athletes for these high intensity actions. And I think the kind of the training recommendations that myself and Alistair will go through are probably applicable, not only for deceleration, but change direction, curvilinear speed, acceleration, high speed running. So trunk control, if we work maybe up and work away down, trunk control has got to be a massive uh, trunk contains approximately half of the body's mass and that needs to be supported typically on one limb when we're doing these deceleration and change of direction actions and we need good control in the frontal plane and the sagittal plane so there's a lot of evidence showing that <clears throat> from a change of direction perspective anyway lateral trunk flexion is going to increase like our knee valgus moments because we get a laterally directed a ground reaction force vector that increases the moment arm and subsequently increases loading so frontal plane trunk control be massive uh, technique modification training so it's just basically good cueing and good coaching with our athletes telling our athletes to adopt a bit more of a neutral trunk posture make sure in the correct alignment I know some people have used medicine balls to try and reinforce optimal trunk alignment I think Ender King and some of the people at the sports surgery clinic have shown that to be quite effective our dynamic trunk stability exercises and balance training has also been shown to be quite effective at improving frontal plane and transverse trunk plane trunk control in terms of probably correcting sagittal plane and avoiding anterior trunk displacement, probably the opposing muscle groups on the posterior aspect. So a lot of our kind of maybe erector spinae, our glute max, so exercises targeting that sort of trunk control, reinforcing that bracing and again, instructing our athletes to try and avoid excessive forward trunk lean when we're decelerating and performing these change direction actions. And there's also evidence showing like these deficits in trunk control can increase ACL injury risk and have been prospectively shown to increase ACL injury risk. So Karen may be correcting that multi-segmental model, focusing on correcting that anterior pelvic tilt, getting that dynamic trunk stability in the sagittal and frontal plane seems to be key. Then because from the biomechanical aspect during these D cells and change directions, we create these large like hip flexor moments and well, externally applied knee flexor and hip flexor moments so they need to be supported and counteracted with a internal hip extensor and knee extensor so again the musculature around the glutes and external hip rotator strengthening is going to be key to tolerate those large hip flexor moments try and resist that change in hip flexion essentially but also it's going to be key in terms of frontal plane control particularly the femur so again there's evidence showing that a knee valgus can increase uh, knee valgus loading but like a two degree difference can increase the torque by around about 40 newton meters 40 newton meters sorry and <clears throat> by having high levels of gluteal activation can resist and oppose and support that potential knee valgus loading and preventing that knee valgus position so that will be key from that perspective but it's also key for facilitating breaking if we start going on to the anterior aspect so if we, the quadricep strengthening is going to be key particularly for those eccentric muscle actions and to support those large external knee flexor moments. So we get an internal knee extensor moment. So we have high levels of quadricep activation, but we have this kind of performance injury trade-off. So we need quadriceps for the braking aspect and we need them for the propulsive aspect if we wanted to go and re-accelerate and perform a change of direction. However, if we don't have high levels of co-activation of the hamstrings, this can increase our anterior tibial shear. So again, I'm going to focus on ACL injuries because I love ACL injuries, <laughs> but it's kind of like a multi, uh, multi-planar mechanism. So we get our anterior tibial shear, which can result in this anterior tibial translation of the tibia relative to the femur. That seems to be one of the primary contributors of ACL loading. If we get this aggressive quadricep activation at these extended knee postures, typically within 
kind of 0 to 40 degrees, where the quadriceps insert, inserted, we can get this anterior tibial translation. So although we do need, I'm not saying we we avoid high levels of quadricep activation, we, we do need it, but we need to make sure we get high levels of co-activation of the hamstrings as well. Hamstrings are biarticular, originate into in the pelvis and certain into different aspects of the tibia and the fibula, but their role is to prevent that anterior tibial translation to try and oppose and create that posterior shear force. And again, there's lots of evidence showing that having weaker hamstrings and fatigued hamstrings can increase ACL loading, some musculoskeletal modeling showing that. So although we do need high levels of quadricep activation, we need to make sure we're getting high levels of co-activation of the hamstrings as well. And that could be a whole range of different fast eccentric velocity exercises, slow velocity exercises, isometric, eccentric, and even potentially some concentric uh, strengthening exercises as well. If we move down the limbs, so we focus on the knee and the hip there in the trunk. <laughs> a whole debate around the gastrocnemius, but the gastrocnemius is a kind of antagonist to the ACL and can increase ACL loading. There's some evidence showing that we need to increase soleus activation, particularly around the ankle. Kind of the ankle acts like a kind of dampener and a shock absorber for our deceleration and our change directions. So although we need that quadriceps, some people argue that soleus activation is key. How you go about isolating soleus without getting gastrocnemius would be quite difficult. I probably don't have the, the answers there. Uh, probably some more intelligent people might be able to answer that. And then we also have a kind of like our intrinsic foot stabilizer muscles and our kind of perennial muscles as well to try and prevent those excessive inversion angular velocities because lateral ankle sprains are kind of a co common injury mechanism during these decel and change of direction actions. So kind of specific exercises target kind of like ankle stability and foot stability. So they're kind of the key muscles and musculature that we want to target. I'm not saying that this is the right or wrong way to go about it. It's a whole different range of methods. My whole philosophy about transfers training is focused on the adaptation that we're trying to elicit. I'm not going to say we must do Olympic lifts or must do this. As long as you've got a rationale behind your exercise and we're trying to elicit some sort of musculoskeletal or mechanical biological adaptation, that's key. So we do, in terms of reducing risk, we're trying to reduce those high-risk deficits that are linked to the potential to generate multiplanar knee joint load. So any frontal plane deficits such as knee valgus, tibia rotation, lateral frontal plane trunk control. There's, again, this is quite a performance injury trade-off. We need athletes to generate high-impact ground reaction forces, but they need to be able to tolerate them. So having athletes physically robust enough, there seems to be this emphasis now in shifting away from kind of injury prevention but more focus on physical robustness to tolerate these loads. So again, to tolerate these potentially hazardous knee joint loads in particular is increasing muscular support around about the knee spanning, non-knee non spanning muscles around the glutes, uh, around about the hip, uh, around the knee as well, the quadriceps and the hamstrings and the lower limb as well. And they can support in some of that loading. By mechanically loading these structures, we are to stimulate some musculoskeletal adaptations and hopefully strengthen those tissues so they're more robust to tolerate them. And what Alistair alluded to before in terms of reducing injury risk is that careful monitoring and sequencing and periodization of these high impact activities. So getting into these advancements in technology, we're monitoring a number of axles and high speed running. There seems to be this kind of sweet spot, not too much, not too little in terms of high speed running. I think, was it Malone? kind of identify maybe six to seven sprints of nine to 
of 95% and above. We just don't know from a change of direction and deceleration perspective, but we encourage practitioners to monitor hopefully these proxies of ACL and lower limb loading and probably try to avoid these rapid spikes, maybe 10 to 20% on a week to week. And then you've got the development of the kind of perceptual cognitive abilities as well. So if we can start identifying some of these cues a bit earlier so we can make some anticipatory postural adjustments and get these high levels of pre-activation, this should, again should hopefully dissipate some of the loads. Uh, probably not kind of a debatable area whether it's a strength conditioning coach's job to work on perceptual cognitive speed. I would encourage people to work with a kind of motor skill expert but I suppose it comes down to work with a skills coach and motor skills experts to try and identify working as perceptual cognitive speed so we can identify these cues earlier put us in a position to make these anticipatory postural adjustments earlier give us the physical affordances to hopefully adopt these kind of safer and more mechanically robust strategies to reduce loading and optimize performance uh, David Harper's we've been working with David he's calling it I think the is it the dynamic breaking performance framework, Alistair? And we're a big believer of multi, a multi-component multi model. So not a one-size-fits-all, but including some drunk stabilization, balance. Uh, plyometric training is a very good transferable exercise uh, for not only for improving performance, but improving lower limb control and neuromuscular activity patterns, but also get some eccentric strength development. In the weight room, I would encourage a multitude of different exercises that focus on all aspects of the force velocity curve. So having some fast eccentric velocity exercises, whether that's through plyometric training, maybe some iso inertial training or some kind of more coordinate overload, some more slower eccentric velocity exercises, whether that's more AEL, accentuated eccentrics, or I don't know, maybe some Nordic curls, for example, or just increasing time under attention and tempo training. I probably encourage people to read the work of Tim Suckerwell. He's done a two-part review. Uh, not my area of expertise, but I know you've interviewed Alex Natera and Daniel Lum. A big emphasis on isometric training at the moment, particularly if we could try and mimic some of the postures in deceleration and change direction. However, we probably do need to target particularly that kind of triple flexion position in a range of different postures because the greater the angle of change direction, you typically go through greater range of hip and knee flexion as well. So you probably need maybe a 140 degree angle, maybe a 120 degree and a maybe a 90 degree angle with different postures. And I know they're big, big advocates of yielding and kind of pushing isometrics. Uh, I, I don't know too much about that. They're, but I think encourage listeners to probably listen to them, but I, I think they're Keep really plugging, Tom. Keep nice. plugging. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and your sports sportsmith articles uh, some great reads in there but yeah i think you can elicit some very good tendon adaptations and get something hopefully quite non-fatiguing uh positive tissue adaptations as well in kind of those sports specific postures whether it's unilateral or a split position and then reactive strength qualities that we could target in the weight room a typical ballistic training our olympic lifts not only during the propulsive phase, but whenever we, de we decelerate the barbell, not going into a debate whether we need to catch or just do the pulling variations. However, if you just do the pulling variations, arguably you get a nice fast eccentric loading as well when we have to decelerate the bar. So that could be a really good method as well. And just your generic uh, tissue conditioning and your general resistance training, your back squats, deadlifts, targeting those key segments that I target before. And, it, and just finally, 
Uh, I know I've talked for ages about this. Focus on movement quality. Essentially, movement is a skill. These injuries occur due to some sort of kind of biomechanical limitation that's increased load into that specific joint or structure. So trying to optimize the technical characteristics that maximize performance, but also potentially mitigate injury risk. There is a performance injury trade-off associated with some of the techniques, but we've shown that in as little as six weeks, we can modify athletes' technique, drawing cutting and turning by giving some externally directed verbal cues and introducing these in the field, whether it's part of a field-based warm-up. I don't buy that athletes, uh, coaches say they haven't got time to throw this type of training into their training programs. Before every technical tactical session, if you do a warm-up with one of our interventions, it was just a warm-up-based intervention. Uh, from a deceleration training perspective, I do think we do need some interventions looking at enforced stopping as a fast eccentric velocity training method, but also as a strategy to reinforce these optimal mechanics. If we want our athletes to move well, we need to practice the skill of decelerating and change the direction in pre-planned environments, but we can get onto that later if you, if you want. Absolutely. Yeah, can I just, can I just add to that, Tom, yeah. as well? Um, I think, I think you, you emphasised a great deal almost that we really believe that the fast eccentric loading component of specific horizontal decelerations in the field is a really key and potentially potent stimulus and I think we can talk about the gym-based strategies which obviously should work in harmony with the field-based athletic development strategies so I think you can't just decide right I'm going to focus on all these eccentric training methods in the gym and that will create super robust resilient athletes i think you also need to make sure that they are specifically applying all these um elements in in field-based drills um we've got uh, a library of different um drill examples that we can provide uh obviously targeting in multiple planes as well because we're not just deceleration not just decelerating in the sagittal plane uh change of direction maneuvers occur and uh, and you know it's a 360 degree um sorry 180 degree from both sides so it's it's something that you, you need to make sure that you're exposing them in the sagittal plane the frontal plane the sagittal um the transverse plane um and yeah so you, you kind of you've got this point where it's it's almost a a harmony of the gym-based programming and the field-based programming to to kind of get the the adaptations that you want and I think there's some really good work by Chris Bellin uh, who's looked into kind of um, how you periodize this these elements over the long term um, I think it was a PhD thesis I don't know if he's actually released much uh, in terms of research but uh, I remember having a good read of it and he basically talks about using the short to long approach of acceleration development um, kind of the pioneer of that has been Charlie Francis but talking about seamless sequential integration whereby we are developing uh, shorter acceleration distances first and foremost in the training cycle and working alongside that are the gym-based methods that actually provide the foundation for the subsequent phase. So as an athlete is then starting to be exposed to greater acceleration distances, they have the prerequisite physical strength and power qualities to, to almost harness that to, to optimum effect. And I think you can, you can see how that would theoretically apply to horizontal deceleration training. So if we were to kind of develop these, um, the foundationally centric strength qualities 
alongside the pitch-based stuff, which might be at this point a bit more of a technical focus, making sure that we're getting the right positions in both the sagittal and uh, frontal plane. And then, you know, you know, methods might be uh, flywheel training or tempo eccentric uh, training, but then using them found or developing them foundational eccentric strength qualities for the subsequent phase to which then you might actually open up the distances. Uh, we use deceleration runways a lot, which is where you can almost increase the, the, the drill distance or the approach velocity before actually making a more intense horizontal deceleration. And by having the prerequisite eccentric strength qualities that you've developed in the previous phase, you should be in a better position to tolerate the, the deceleration demands there. So I think it's always about using both gym-based and field-based uh, athletic development um, uh, exercises to, to create these athletes um, or to promote these characteristics that we want to see uh, from both performance and injury risk uh, perspective. Sorry, Alice, just, just one point. I suppose it comes down to your point about the monitoring, like we said before, we can easily integrate these kind of field-based runways and decelerations into our field-based training. We don't know too much about the optimal dosages, so we encourage like a kind of conservative approach, great careful periodization. I probably would say maybe only theoretically maybe 100 to 200 meters of enforced stoppings, probably only that's needed because we need to be monitoring the kind of technical, tactical-based sessions as well. We don't want to overexpose athletes, but I think we certainly need more research in that area about the optimal dosages and whether that differentiates between athletes whether they've got uh, high levels of physical capacity I, i'd imagine athletes with great physical capacities are able to tolerate greater dosages of this enforced deceleration training but a kind of a careful conservative approach is what we'd recommend but if you're not monitoring you're just guessing so that's why we would come back to if you're at least getting some monitoring of the frequency and potential deceleration distances in addition to whether you prescribe it five or ten, five or ten meter decelerations, I think that's a really big thing to think about. I would also just say, um, kind of going back on to the what we know about horizontal decelerations and kind of the the unique physiological and biomechanical characteristics that might separate them from other potential multidirectional speed elements that you'll be exposing your athletes to. So almost looking at it from a macroscopic perspective and going, right, what, what training sessions are we carrying out this week, the next week, over six weeks, and going, right, can we sequence these in different ways? Because we know that the recovery timelines of these more like biomechanically focused elements um, with the eccentric loading might be quite different to what uh, an acceleration-focused um, session might be. So almost looking at it over a six-week cycle and, and actually sequencing your accelerations, your your high-speed running, which are maybe more of a, a concentric focus with less muscle damage than a horizontal deceleration would impart, and actually making sure that you're sequencing them differently rather than just going, right, I'm going to deload on week five. That's fine. You actually might want to look into it and go, I'm going to deload um, these accelerations and high-speed running uh, in week four and then pick it back up in week six whereas actually you might want to give a bit more time for that adaptation to happen with the horizontal decelerations um, and in that way we, we can actually uh, harmonize and sequence different variables at different times to make sure that you might be deloading and um, 
not targeting the specific multi-directional speed quality in one week, but it doesn't mean that you can't focus on another element uh, and almost using them as windows of opportunity uh, to target uh, other elements. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed the chat with Alistair and Tom. So if you thought this episode ended abruptly, it was because there is a part two coming up next week which dives into change direction ability with both these guys as well. It was supposed to be a part one, but because the depth they went into on deceleration, we had to uh, definitely make it a part two, which is absolutely fine with me. So big thanks to Hawking Dynamics, iMeasureU and Fusion Sport for sponsoring this episode today. And obviously thanks to you guys for tuning in and I hope you got as much out of this episode as I did.